Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. But oh, how we try. We've been talking uh, about the Old Testament as though it were a series of movies. And the plot connecting all the movies is how God saves the world. And so in the time of Noah, he saves it in an ark. In the time of Abraham, he saves it on an altar. And in the time of Joseph, he saves it through a remnant. Now this morning is the story of Moses. Moses is the greatest story of deliverance probably in the whole world. He is an unlikely hero. Every time God calls him, he tries to get out of it. So I put on the screen, for instance, some of the things that Moses said when his call came to him. He says, who am I that I should lead these people out of his? They won't listen to me. They'll say, the Lord did not appear to you. And Lord, I'm not very good with words. I get tongue-tied. And finally, when the Lord keeps pressing, he says, look, why don't you just call somebody else? The thing that sets Moses apart from other leaders, perhaps, is this very trait. It's his reluctance. Here stands or kneels a person in front of a bush that is on fire and it is not burning up. There is a voice coming out of the bush calling him by name twice, Moses, Moses. It's the first time God has spoken in 400 years to any mortal. And that's not enough. He doesn't say yes. He says, but they're not going to listen to me if I do this. They're going to say, the Lord did not speak to you. The Lord said, then throw down your staff. And when he does, it turns into a serpent. And he says, now pick it up. <laughs> Some of us would be like, no, done. And when he picked it up by the tail, it turned back into a staff. And Moses thought, it's not that fantastic. Pharaoh's wizards do things like this all the time. Lord said, put your hand inside your jacket. Pull it out. And he looked at it and it was white with leprosy. He said, put it back in there again. Now look at it again. And it was clean. You'd think that would do the trick for sure. But Moses said, but I can't talk. I'm not good with words. Leaders have to talk. The Lord said, who gave you your mouth? I will teach you what to say. And while there's not a preacher in the world who wouldn't kill for a guarantee like that, Moses says, look, why don't you just call somebody else? Lord says, take that staff and hold it in your hand. You'll use that to perform miracles. If God saves the world in an ark or on an altar or through a remnant in Moses, he saves the world through unlikely people. A person that looks at miracle after miracle after miracle, supernatural signs, hears the voice from God, 
and refuses to follow. I think there are two kinds of leaders. Most of us were called to lead something long before we knew what we were doing. They elected you to the office, they gave you the job, you got your first class, they made you captain of the team, or they handed you your first child. (laughs) And no one ever said to you, congratulations, you're a leader. But that's what you were. And you never felt like it, probably. But you knew that it was an aggressive and competitive world. And so if you wanted to compete and you wanted to leave a mark, you'd have to adapt a personality that is not your personality. It's like an alter ego. You learn to become what you believe the job needs you to become what it takes to keep up with society. But that's not who you are, probably. I have been around leaders for a long time now, and I have learned that the dirty little secret of leaders is that they are never as confident in private as they appear in public. They can put it on because they have to. They have to sell something. They have to get it passed. But inside, they're filled with all sorts of questions and loopholes in their argument. And I think it's in that tension right there. I'm called to do something, and yet I don't know what I am doing. We develop this alter ego. And from there, we fall into one of two categories. One of them is an assertive leader. The other one is a reluctant leader. An assertive leader is David. He's like 12 years old. He goes to the front line. His brothers are in combat, and he looks out over their head, and he sees a nine-foot behemoth standing there, well-armed, taunting the Israelites. They're running in fear, and David, the boy is like 12, stands there and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Why are you listening to this? Why does he dare criticize the armies of the living God? (laughs) His brothers are like, we don't know. The king learns of this, calls David into his chambers. And (laughs) you'd think that would intimidate the kid, but what he says to the king is, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. God will deliver him into my hands. (laughs) Saul says to him, Son, this Philistine has been a fighting man since his youth. Translated, he's a man-child. He was born big. David thinks, and he's too big to miss. (laughs) He says, 
let me fight the Philistine. Finally, Saul consents and says, if you're going to fight him, at least put on my armor. (laughs) So he puts on Saul's big, heavy armor, and he just throws it off because in his words, I'm not used to it. That's really what he said. I'm not used to this. (laughs) Well, of course you're not used to this. Because you're driving a rickshaw, this is a Mercedes Benz. Of course you're not used to this. This is what military men have. You don't stand in the king's presence and say, sorry, I don't want your junk. I'm not used to this. Finally, Saul relents and David goes out to the field. And there is Goliath. Towering over nine feet, Goliath starts to taunt him and says, who am I? that you send dog out to fight me like this. David says, I will strike you down on this day and I'll cut off your head and I'll let the birds eat your flesh. Now wait for the last line. Then all the world will know that there is a God in Israel. Assertive leaders, I've worked for them, I've worked with them. They're not all the same. They're not all super confident, they're not all outspoken, they're not all charismatic, but they all have a switch. And when they see what needs to be done, they can flip a switch and they go after it, fearless of the consequences. The other kind of leader is a reluctant leader. If David refuses to be denied, the reluctant leader refuses to accept the invitation. David can't come to grips with the fact that somebody doesn't want him. Moses can't come to grips with the fact that somebody does. And so his entire career, he is, uh, he is just torn by these inner voices that tell him he's not good enough for the job. I'm not saying David never had these voices. I'm saying he could turn them off. Moses can't. Hears them his whole life. And so deep into his career... The first time there's resistance, the first time the people don't like him, he says, I want to quit. He's a reluctant leader. I went back to the early chapters in Moses' life and tried to identify um, marks of reluctant leaders. And here's why, because I think probably there are more people in the room today uh, who are reluctant than there are people like David. Now, you might have learned to become aggressive, but that's not your default. And today I want you to get in touch with your real self, not the false self, the one that you've put on. Reluctant leaders, I think, often come from troubled Backgrounds. 
Moses is raised by a single parent who is not his mother. All of his contemporaries are dead. They were drowned in the Nile River. He is alone through all of his childhood. I wonder if reluctant leaders don't have this stigma in their past that follows them for the rest of their life that makes them think, I hope nobody finds out about this because if they do, then they will know that I'm an imposter. I don't deserve this position that they gave me. Reluctant leaders are never wanting to take something on. They find themselves caught in the drama. They see an injustice, they see a cause, and before they know it, they are just pulled right into it. And when they get into it, they get in between conflicting powers. One of them doesn't like them and the other one wants to kill them. And so they say, as Moses did when he named his first child, I am a, I'm an alien in a foreign country. I wonder if reluctant leaders live in the crucible of a homelessness. They can be loyal to their family and their friends, but they always feel like nobody else around them understands. I wonder if they are plagued by some failure in their past, the time when they tried something or they ran for something and it didn't go well and it reinforced the narrative that they have of their self that says, you are a nobody and you will remain a nobody until you prove to the world you are a somebody and you can't. I wonder if reluctant leaders like Moses have a defect or a deficiency, um, anyway, a handicap that comes from their path. I can't talk. Some say Moses stuttered, bothered him his whole life. And I wonder if reluctant leaders today have something about them. It's their intelligence or their appearance or some disability which they think disqualifies them from leadership. They always look at other leaders and think they can do it better. Oh, find Aaron. He knows what he's doing for sure. I said to somebody not long ago, I read 22 books on leadership in six months. Felt like a worse one when I was done than when I started. <laughs> David writes all the leadership stuff. Moses can't fit in the armor. I wonder if reluctant leaders have a staff. They have an edge. They have an ability. It's a talent. It's a skill that very few people have. And it's a powerful leverage. But they underestimate it. They don't know what it can do. And so they just drag it along with them instead of using it. Take a moment and think about yourself. Are you more like David? Who is that giant? I'll kick his rear end. Or are you more like Moses? Who am I? Call somebody else. I want to spend the rest of the day just a few moments talking only to reluctant leaders. If you're David, 
you got the day off. But then you're exhausted and you need it. So what I've done is I've read the entire life of Moses. I'm going to do this in 20 minutes. With a two handfuls of points. These are not points. These are axioms. You know what an axiom is? An axiom is like a proverb. It's a short statement with a ton of experience and history behind it. I want to give you a couple sleeves of axioms. Not all of these will apply to you if you're a Moses, but one or two of them might. And if it does, I hope you'll write it down. Maybe put it on your wall. Because someday when you're going out the office or you're driving through the traffic, you'll see it there on the dash. And it will remind you, oh, that's right. This is how I'm supposed to lead. Here's the first one. The success of any venture or any organization is disproportionate to one person. The Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt, so I'm sending you. (laughs) Others will be needed. Teams can be aligned. Power can be distributed. Hierarchies can be flattened. But at the end of the day, there is one person in every venture and every organization that God is looking to pour his blessing through so that the whole family, team, organization, neighborhood, city, job can be blessed. What we're talking about is ownership. Ownership is not a separate set of skills. It's a way of thinking about whatever skills you have. And it's a way of engaging your area where God has assigned you with those skills. Because you know that the world is not going to be made better by somebody else over the next few decades. It will get better or it won't based on what people like you do. Number two, God can use you even without your consent. Moses was named by his stepmother, Moses. She said, I drew him from the water. So he spends his entire childhood named, drawn from the water. Those of you that have read the whole story know that that's exactly what he would do for other people later on. His mission is in his name. So on the day he's called Moses, Moses, (laughs) he hears drawn from the water, drawn from the water. Go draw other people from the water. Point, long before you hear the voice of God, he's already seen you. He's marked you. He's wired into you the very things you need. All of your experiences, everything you like, and some things you hate. All come together 
to be part of your calling. You might recognize it later, but it was there from the beginning. So you go home today and you have a conversation with people who know you well. And you start asking yourself, how were all of the nuances and all of the experiences in my past somehow coming together? What do they mean? Number three, God can call you in your weakness like he calls other people in their strength. When God calls you in your strength, you're driven by your passion. You, you, you can see yourself doing something and probably doing it well. Oh, I want to do that because there I get to use my gift. But when God calls you in your weakness, you are driven by obedience, not passion. You can't see yourself doing it, but you wouldn't dare quit because the moment God calls you, you're in between him and the devil. He won't leave you alone until you say yes, and the devil won't leave you alone until you say no. You had no control over this. So you do it because you must. But here is the beauty of this. When you lead from your weakness, the part of you that you keep trying to put down because you think it won't succeed in the workplace, you actually recruit other powerful leaders around you. Study after study after study reveals this. Forceful leaders recruit less productive teams. People who lead from humility that was found in the genesis of their calling recruit more productive teams who make them more productive. Number five, you can be courageous even when you're afraid. And the Lord said, I will be with you. I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians. Courage, you learn, is not the absence of fear. It's the knowledge that something is more important than the thing you fear. And so it is rooted, in fact, in your weakness, not in your strength. You can only show courage when you are afraid. It doesn't cast out fear. It transcends fear. It doesn't believe that you can do something, it believes that God is about to do something and it just gets in the line of fire. Number six, put that up there. I got to remember them now. You can be in charge of something without making it happen. And Moses stretched out his hands over the sea then the Lord, not Moses, it was the Lord who blew the wind and parted the waters. You will be tempted when you lead from your strength instead of your weakness to imagine that you are responsible for the outcomes. You're not. You're responsible for the inputs. 
because the outcomes in any venture are usually dependent on variables you can't control, let alone foresee. So in weakness, you do with diligence the thing that is required today. Now you'll have a part, but it does not equal the outcome. Long time ago, somebody reminded me there are two columns, that which God does and that which you do. And you must never confuse those, Steve. He went to Psalm 37 and it said this, do not fret because of evildoers. That's your responsibility. For they will soon be cut down and perish like the grass. That is God's responsibility. Delight yourself in the Lord. Trust in him. That's your responsibility. And he will give you the desires of your heart. That's his responsibility. Commit yourself to the Lord and wait patiently for him. That's your responsibility. And he will make sure that your righteousness shines like the dawn. That's his responsibility. We get into trouble when we bring his responsibility into our list. So even though you're in charge of something, you cannot make it happen. Number seven, roll it. Let me see it. You can learn to lead people who don't like you. <laughs> My first church, I got a couple years into that and I met some resistance. They were leaving me notes and they were pointing out all of my flaws. I mean, most of them I had. They were leaving books by Robert Schuler in my car. <laughs> Be positive. Can you imagine that? I finally got on the phone one day and I called my dad. And I said, these people are incorrigible. And he said, what are they doing? And I started listing things and he would say, that's true, that's true, that's true. <laughs> I, said, I said, you're my dad, man. You can't be doing this right now. He said, that it? I said, no, they're doing a few other things and I listed them. He said, now that's another story. I said, what's the problem there? He said, well, they just don't like you, that's all. <laughs> I said, what? do I do? He said, now you're going to have to learn how to lead people who don't like you. If you're a reluctant leader, you are hypersensitive to criticism. You depend too much on the affirmation of people that you lead. And when it's not forthcoming, you always feel like you want to quit. You will have to learn how to lead people who don't like you. You can do that, you know. But you lead from a position of vulnerability, not strength. You lead by reminding people that wherever you're taking them, you're as much a pioneer to that place as they are. God is always standing before you by the rock. They follow you not because of your position or because you're smart or because you can win in a battle of words. They follow you because at the end of the day when you touch that rock, something happens. 
their futures got better. Because you followed God to the rock. It's your body of work that wins the day. Which leads to the next one. You can win an argument without saying a word. One of my favorite scenes in Moses' life is while they're in the desert and the people are, wait for it, grumbling. You ever led people like that? Doesn't matter how many miracles, they're still unhappy about something. And they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Even though God is about to spread the floor with food, they're unhappy. Later in chapter 16, it says, they went out and stood in the desert and the people started to grumble. And while they were grumbling, Aaron started speaking. Moses, because he's tongue-tied, doesn't know what to say. He just stands next to Aaron while he talks. And while the people are getting ready to vent one more time, it says they looked out in the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. <laughs> I think Moses just went, Number eight, nine, ten, however many this is, put it up there. <laughs> your greatest impact will sometimes be in your absence instead of your presence. If you're an introvert, you're probably a reluctant leader. The good side is that you probably naturally have the capacity to do something extroverts can't do. Intercede. If you allow yourself to be pulled into David's game, you will always think to lead people, you have to be in front of them. But if God has made you a reluctant leader, he will call you sometimes up to a mountain where there are no people. And there you will broker a deal with God for the life of your people that will affect their future and not one of them will know you did it. There's a powerful scene in Exodus chapter 33 where the Lord had had it with Israel. And he said to them, take these people and go on to the land of milk and honey. But as for me, I'm not going. Because if I went, I'm afraid I'd kill you. <laughs> okay, then. Moses says, if you don't go, don't send us. The Lord says to him, I'll see you up that mountain. And when he gets to the top of the mountain with none of the people around, the Lord looks, or Moses looks to the Lord and he says, you remember this, you formed these people. They are your nation. What you do with these people, the rest of the world will be paying attention to. Lord, with all due respect, you should think about that. 
There's a pause, I imagine, in the conversation where the Lord says to Moses, all right then, I will go with you and I will give you rest. Do you realize that the people could have gone on without God and probably never missed him? But someone that has been in God's presence most of his life knows that's a game changer. People can feel wildly successful and prosperous even when God is not there. And that's not enough. So God may call you, some of you, reluctant people who think, I can't get in front of other people to intercede, to put this congregation on your back and go to this altar and start bargaining for people who will never know you did it and they won't thank you. Turn, let's go to the next one. Live with integrity because sometimes consequences are more drastic than your actions deserve. You all know the story when the Lord said, go to the rock and speak to it. Moses was flabbergasted by then. He took the staff and went over and struck the rock. And when he did, struck it again. Water started to gush from the rock. First person had not drunk yet when the Lord said to Moses, you got your water. But because you did that, you'll never get into the land I promised. One foolish error costs Adam and Eve the garden. Cost Moses a trip to the land he was once supposed to go. It can cost us. You will be tempted all of your life to minimize your errors, to think that they're not that big. And maybe some of them aren't, but sometimes the consequences are twice their size. Be careful what you say. And be careful what you do. Next. Sometimes discernment is more important than vision. You will be tempted someday to cast a vision for your organization. You'll do this because the people in your department will ask for it. They will come to you and say things like, we don't really know where we're going, and we don't know how what we're doing fits into this. And so you will say to yourself, there's a deficiency in vision here. I need to cast a vision. From there, you'll develop a strategy. And from there, you'll implement your strategy. My fear is not that you will fail. It's that you will succeed and believe that vision alone is the way to move an organization forward. And I confess it is a powerful tool. But it isn't the only one. Sometimes you lead by waiting to see what God is doing. And you just call people into that. You don't get in front of them and say, I got a dream. You wait and say, God is on the move. We never would have done this, but it looks like he's going to. We ought to throw in.
number 11. You can have a vision for something you're not supposed to do. Towards the end of Moses' life, the Lord takes him to the top of the mountain and says, look out over the land that I promised you. Look, he says, because you will die on that mountain and you will not inherit the land. I think it's a flaw in much leadership today, church, that our visions are no longer than our lifetime. I think too many of us can only envision things that can be done in our lifetime. And I think there is room for somebody to get on top of a mountain and see things that will happen after their lifetime. I talked to a man not long ago who said with a terminal disease that he was not afraid to die, but he was sad. I said, why is that? He said, I envision everything God will be doing with my family and I won't be there for it. I understand that passion and that sadness. It's what every leader feels. Every person who is in charge of something feels that the movement is going so much further than they will get to go. But do you not realize it is here in this moment that our lives find their meaning? Here we discover that what we've given our lives to is much longer than our lives. And so it's bigger than our lives. And that's what makes this work meaningful. Last you can feel like a failure and still succeed. Some time ago, I was uh, called uh, by a North Carolina district to speak to their district conference. When they call you in for one night, they don't want you to hit a single. They want you to hit a home run. I don't have a home run. And so I spent four or five months writing one sermon for one night that I intended to deliver to this conference. I had it all polished. I was ready to go. I got on the road. I flew to Charlotte, North Carolina. When I landed, there was no one to pick me up. I made 11 phone calls, not that I counted, <laughs> before someone finally said to me on my little flip phone, oh, we're not supposed to pick you up. You're supposed to rent a car and drive. I said, how far away are you? They said, we're at a convention center 90 minutes from you. I looked at my watch. It was 5.30. The event started at 7 o'clock. I went over to the counter and I said, I'm looking to rent a car. What do you have? They said, we have one left. It's a Ford Focus. I almost flew home. I rented a Ford Focus four-cylinder, put my six-foot-five body in that little thing and started out for the interstate. No sooner did I get on it when the interstate was a parking lot. There was traffic all the way down. I had a flip phone, not a smartphone. Google Maps had not been invented yet. I got on the phone and called my sister back in the office and I said, I'm in trouble. I need to be there in just a little more than an hour and I'm sitting in a parking lot. 
she got on the internet and started finding alternate routes and talked me through a series of country roads several miles and finally I found an entrance. I got back on the interstate and as soon as I did, I put that thing to the floor and I was going more than 80 miles an hour. This is a four-cylinder and it is screaming by this time. I reached in my briefcase, I pulled out that sermon I'd spent four months writing, I put it on the steering wheel and I started reading that sermon while I drove 80 miles an hour. I pulled into the parking lot as people were going into the building, carrying my jacket, suit jacket, I had to change. They said, who are you? I said, you'll know in a few minutes. I went into the bathroom, got in the handicapped stall. I started changing my clothes, called my wife, and I said, baby, you got to pray. We're in trouble here. She said, what happened? I told the story to her. She said, I'll pray. And I was no sooner done, and they came knocking on that stall door and said, we got to do a sound check. Get in there and do a sound check. <laughs> so I hurried up, and I ran in there, and they did a few sound checks, and then they said, when the service begins, we won't introduce you. We're going to have the choir come onto the platform. They're going to sing. And when the choir's done, you're up. Remember that. When the choir's done, you're up and you will start speaking. I said, I got it. I went over and sat on this side, second row. Service went going and all of a sudden the choir got up to lead. And as the choir was starting to sing, I had this strong inward voice that I thought was the Lord that said, you know, that sermon that you wrote four months, you can't do that. I fought that for the longest time, hoping the choir would get lost on the ending and not. Before I had left the office, I had inadvertently grabbed three or four old messages and threw them in just in case. I fought that voice for a minute or two and finally I knew that I had to obey and I reached into that case, still arguing with God. And about the time I did this, the choir had just finished singing and I shouted out loud in frustration, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> so the choir hit its opus ending. No. You've got to be kidding me. Came from the speaker in the second row. I took a sermon I had never seen in more than a year, I think, in my hand, threw the paper clip down and went walking onto the dais, still looking at the notes. I stood behind the lectern, never making eye contact for about 60 seconds, which is eternal when you're the guest speaker. And finally, I looked up and lied through my teeth. I said, I'm so glad to be with you tonight. <laughs> I started to preach a truly forgettable, no, I think it was memorable sermon. I got to the end of that sermon and I could tell the wheels had come off and I was empty in my pockets looking for things I'd read or stories I'd heard. And I heard a story Keith Dury tell one time when David came out as a boy and said, God, talk to me. Sharon said, what did he say? Keith just said, go tell him yes. 
I thought that's an ever-present help in the time of need. So I told that story at the very end. Whatever God is saying to you tonight, just tell him yes. Let's pray. Amen. I walked off the platform. They came up and tried to collect the end of that service. And then they dismissed people. I got in my car and I drove back to the airport. My sister called me and said, well, how did it go? I told her this story. I said, God, I was sure he told me not to do that. She said, well, did he confirm it? I thought, what are you, charismatic? I said, no, he did not confirm that. He sends me up and hangs me out to dry. I get in my car, I'm driving back, and he does not have the decency to say, boy." <laughs> I get nothing driving back. Two years go by. Two years go by. And I'm thinking, I will never do that again. I'm teaching a class in Frankfurt, Indiana. A man about 55 years old comes in and sits across the table from me and says, you were the speaker in North Carolina one night. Do you remember that night? <laughs> I said, well, that was the night from, well, not heaven. <laughs> I said, I preached a truly forgettable message that night. He said, yeah, it wasn't that good. <laughs> then he said, you never gave an altar call. Why didn't you do that? I said, because, sir, I was just trying to get out of there as fast as I could. I was humiliated and embarrassed. I never felt like more of a failure in my life. This is what he said. This is a quote. He said, you should have given an altar call, sir. I was knocking chairs over to get to the front and pray. I said, why were you doing that? He said, I'm a civil engineer. I make a really good salary. I've been fighting a call from God in my life for more than two or three years. And then you get up and preach a truly forgettable sermon and you finish by saying whatever God is calling you to do, just say yes. And I knew in that moment he had me. He said, the reason I'm here, sir, is because I'm taking classes to become a minister, which, by the way, he did pastors today you can feel like you have failed and still be successful because in the end it's not about you here's my ask I think there are reluctant leaders all over the congregation not all of these thoughts have hit you, but some of them have. And maybe God is identifying you this morning as a Moses. And maybe you work in areas or for people where there are invisible layers of employees feeling oppressed, poor, downtrodden. And maybe God wants you to lead them up. I'm not the one in charge, you say. Yeah, but the one who takes ownership 
is not always the one in charge. It's the one who is willing to be used as a valve by God to bless that organization. Would you bow your heads? In a moment, I'll lead you, or Bo will, in the prayer of Wesley of consecration. But first, I wonder if you would just self-identify, if you would say, I'm in that category. I don't feel especially talented. I feel like I've failed too much to ever be successful now. The call is so much larger than me, and I don't really know where I'm going, but I do sense that God has his hand on my life. And while I don't feel passion, I feel like I must obey 